The nuclear industry likes to slap on its happy face and pretend that everything it does makes perfect sense. They have the welfare of the world in the forefront. Their technology is not dangerous, but nuclear matters are so complex that only they are the experts when it comes to nuclear matters and impacts. And anyone who opposes them is a wrong-headed, tree-hugging, aging hippie tilting at nuclear windmills. Well, when you look back at a year filled with relentless nuclear numbnutsery, it's easy to understand that the nuclear industry is not in control of what they're doing. They lie all the time, backed up by millions and millions of dollars of public relations. They are burdening the world with a forever legacy of deadly radioactive waste, and they go off the rails so often that the rest of us find ourselves stuck in a terminally uncomfortable seat. And that's a seat that we all share. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things nuclear from a different perspective. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when those nuclear so-called experts get it wrong. This week, a look back at Nuclear 2019 through the lens of our most popular feature, Numbnuts of the Week. Nuclear industry, bad ideas, sloppy execution, financial malfeasance, human error. Hey, when it comes to nuclear, there is numbnutsery everywhere you look. So we'll visit some of the most blatant examples and then focus on our annual award for Numbnuts of the Year. Today is Wednesday, January 1st, 2020. And here is this week's year-end special, Nuclear Hot Seats, Nuclear Numbnuts of the Year. All of it coming to you from a different perspective. Most of what we cover here each week on Nuclear Hot Seat qualifies for numbnuts, just on principle. Because when it comes to nuclear, it seems nobody looks at the big picture, the long view, or pays attention to the warning signs, and none of it makes sense. Like a badly written movie with unbelievable plot points, this poisonous industry just keeps rolling over people and the environment based purely on the power of its well-funded lobbyists, propaganda, PR talking points, well-focused group, of course, and who knows where other monies may be going, either above or below various tables. Each week on this show, one story gets chosen as numbnuts of the week because it is so ludicrous, points out such incompetence, shows an over-the-top evil, or, in that moment, outshines all others just in terms of its ridiculousness. It's not necessarily the biggest story of the week or the most important. Just the one that seems at that time to be most divorced from informed consensus reality, and so insane that it just might make you laugh. For example, 
This piece of official radiation protection advice featured on Nuclear Hot Seat 431 from September 2015. Have all advised people that in case of a nuclear explosion, they should never, never use hair conditioner. If you find yourself outside during a nuclear detonation, the CDC recommends that you seek shelter immediately. Take off contaminated clothing and hop into the shower as soon as possible. Just You can use shampoo, but don't use that hair conditioner because it can trap radiation in your hair. Right. Like, the water infrastructure is still going to be there when the fireball or shockwaves from a blast can topple buildings, reducing a city of the size of mm, Hiroshima or Nagasaki to dust. The warning from the CDC adds, after 48 hours, the exposure rate from a 10 kiloton explosion, that's two-thirds the size of Hiroshima, but they say it's the type that might damage but not destroy a city, Hint, hint, propaganda alert. At that point, it might be safe to venture outside and resume your normal personal care routine. Just ignore all the dead bodies and hope you don't die from radiation poisoning in a month. I can't make this stuff up. And that's why CDC, FEMA, EPA, you are conjoined this week as... Nuclear hot seed, none that's out a week. We're going to lose the opening Nun Nuts music, or you're really going to get sick of it. But let's take a look at the military and what they want to do with nukes that aren't even bombs, at least not yet. From episode number 398, February 5th of last year, the U.S. Pentagon wants to be able to fly small nuclear reactors in transport jets. What could go wrong? This is the latest in the campaign to be able to empower cute little nukes, modular Legos, and, gee, it's portable. Next, they'll be telling us it's a solar-powered nuke. The Department of Defense wants a portable nuclear reactor the size of a main battle tank that's capable of being lifted to overseas hotspots that will only then get even hotter. It's akin to a nuclear reactor that, between 1964 and 72, operated at the U.S. research station at McMurdo Station, Antarctica. As we reported on last week's show, locals from New Zealand called it Nukipoo, in honor of the fact that the reactor malfunctioned 438 times over its eight years of operation, a reliability rate of just 72%. It was also implicated in a spike in cancer-related deaths. Oops! And that's why Department of Defense proponents of a brand new generation Nuki-poo, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week! Then, in episode 428 from September 4th, we heard about the bright idea to have artificial intelligence computers launch a nuclear attack. 
hypersonic missiles, stealth cruise missiles, and weaponized artificial intelligence have so reduced the amount of time that decision-makers in the U.S. would theoretically have to respond to a nuclear attack that two military so-called experts say it's time to give artificial intelligence control over the launch button. I mean, really, what could go wrong? And how many bad movies include that plot point? In an article entitled, America Needs a Dead Hand, U.S. deterrence so-called experts Adam Lowther and Curtis McGiven propose a nuclear command control and communications setup with eerie similarities to the Soviet system Dead Hand, which was a semi-automated system developed to launch the Soviet Union's nuclear arsenal under certain conditions, particularly the loss of national leaders. These two military Tweedledum and Tweedledummers say that U.S. leaders would be under such time pressure, quote, it may be necessary to develop a system based on artificial intelligence with predetermined response decisions that detect, decide, and direct strategic forces with such speed that the attack time compression challenge does not place the United States in an impossible situation. No, you doofuses, nukes place the U.S. and the rest of the world in an impossible situation. You just want us to get there faster. Now, these guys just love, and you can hear the overtones in there, that this system would bolster the United States' ability to respond to a nuclear attack after the fact. That is, ensure a so-called second strike capability. It would adopt a willingness to preemptively attack other countries based on warnings that they are preparing to attack the United States. In other words, saber-rattling, like North Korea does all the time. And, of course, they could always destabilize that country's adversaries by fielding nukes near their borders. I don't know what they mean by fielding, but it doesn't sound good. While the Soviet dead hand system could only be launched after a nuclear attack by three officers deep in a bunker would set off rockets that would fly across the country, initiating the launch of all the Soviet Union's remaining missiles in a sort of revenge-from-the-grave type move. But Lowther and McGiffin say a hypothetical U.S. system would be different from dead hand because, quote, the system itself would determine the response based on its own assessment of the inbound threat. That is to say, the U.S. system would be better because it wouldn't necessarily wait for a nuclear detonation to launch a U.S. nuclear attack. Lowther and McGiffin and anybody who takes these guys seriously, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Then there's that contradiction in terms, limited nuclear war. As though nuclear war could ever be limited. But still, that concept has some people focused on, well, what I can only label misplaced priorities. From April 24th, episode number 409. The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists just published an article entitled, why the financial community should work to prevent the market and economic shocks of a nuclear incident. Not the devastation to life, health, and the environment. No, 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 no. Let's worry about your stock portfolios. The article by a Wall Street insider, David Epstein, states, The risks of a nuclear incident are something of an elephant in the room in the financial and business communities. 
As stewards of the capital markets and economy, bankers, money managers, regulators, and leaders of the broader business community should pursue a dual track, working to prevent nuclear incidents while simultaneously preparing for the market and economic shocks that will undoubtedly ensue if prevention efforts fail. To demonstrate how brain-dead this enormous article is, a single point. Epstein writes reassuringly, There is now a much higher probability that any nuclear incident the world sees will be a limited one that kills less than 1% of the global population. In such a scenario, the broader public clearly is going to care about what is happening to its investment portfolios and companies and to the overall economy. Let's put this in perspective. If the world population, as reported, is currently 7.6 billion people, then we're talking about 76 million people dead from a single nuclear incident. If that were all in a single country, it would be the 20th largest country in the world, smack between Thailand and Turkey. And this guy's worried about investment portfolios? Left-brained, brain-dead, and totally divorced from what life is all about. And there's much more in this article, but I'll leave it for you to take a look at it. Because David Epstein and Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that sound a week. But you know, all of our technology that goes behind the ability to launch a nuclear attack might not be as done a deal as it sounds. That's because nature always finds a way to fight back. This from October 3rd, episode number 435. A U.S. Navy doomsday aircraft meant to survive a nuclear attack and carry high-level government and military personnel who have survived so that they can attack another day, recently met its match, a bird. Oh, Mr. Hitchcock, you warned us. The bird strike took out one of the plane's four engines, and the U.S. Navy declared it a Class A mishap meaning the event caused more than $2 million in damages, death, or permanent disability. Since no death or permanent disability have been reported, it cost more than $2 million smackaroos from the damage. The event occurred on October 2nd when the aircraft struck an as-yet-unidentified bird. No injuries were reported, except for the bird, and the bird has not been identified pending notification of its next of kin. The plane landed safely on the runway at the air station, and now we've got to come up with that two million smackaroos, or our fearful leaders will not be able to escape the doomsday they create. And that's this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that sound a week. Of course, after that first bomb goes off, be it a limited one or a back-to-the-stone-age one, we'll all need a drink. And the U.S. government was so concerned about safety, they commissioned this numbnuts back in the 1950s. We spoke about it on November 28, episode 410. So you're minding your own business when all of a sudden, a nuclear bomb goes off. There's a shockwave, fires all around, general destruction, and you, having somehow survived, need a drink. But what can you do? There's no running water, not where you are. 
But there is a convenience store, and there are still bottles of beer, Coke, and diet soda intact on the floor. So you wonder, can I grab one of those beers and gulp it down, or is it too radioactive? And what about taste? If I drink it, will it taste okay? Right, like that's the major thing you're going to be worried about. Well, science historian Alex Wellerstein is in possession of a 1957 U.S. government study called The Effect of Nuclear Explosions on Commercially Packaged Beverages, which addresses this very question. After the bomb, can I drink the beer? In 1956, the Atomic Energy Commission exploded two bombs, one with an energy release equivalent to 20 kilotons of TNT, the other 30 kilotons. Note that the yield of the Hiroshima bomb was 15 kilotons. At the nuclear test site in Nevada, bottles and cans were carefully placed various distances from ground zero, so long ago that some of the bottles are actually marked returnable. Afterwards, it was shown that the bottles closest to ground zero were indeed radioactive, but only mildly so. The sodas and beers were, according to Alex, quote, well within the permissible limits for emergency use, which means... It won't hurt you in the short term. And the report also says, immediate taste tests, you gotta wonder who got that job, indicated that the beverages, both beer and soft drinks, were still of commercial quality, although there was evidence of a slight flavor change in some of the products exposed at only 1,270 feet from ground zero. The most blasted beers were definitely off. So after a nuclear explosion... If you want to get blasted a second time, feel free to drink any of the beer that might be there. The taste might be off, but hey, at least you're alive to taste it. And as Robert Coleridge sums it up, for me, the takeaway here is that the next time you find yourself stocking up on beer, remember, it's not just for the long weekend. It might be for the end of days. And that's why, whoever thought this one up, you are this week's Nuclear hot seed, none nuts of the week. Which brings us to the radioactive topic of food, glorious food. That's always a big subject when discussing nuclear numbnutsery. One reason is that while nuclear exposures and reassurances of safety concentrate on external exposure that one may experience, the nuclear industry avoids presenting the dangers of internal contamination. What happens when that nasty radioactivity gets into your body by eating or drinking something that's been contaminated, or you inhale it, or it sneaks into a break in your skin through a scrape or a cut? But the things we eat and drink are ground zero in manipulating people with, shall we say, less than accurate information, especially in Japan, with the post-Fukushima radioactive Olympics coming up. Sometimes manipulating the public can be as easy as the nuclear industry coming up with a convincing ad. This from February 12, episode 399. Japan's reconstruction agency is going to air ads for Fukushima products on TV, online, and at cinemas. The 30-second spot is aimed at dispelling harmful rumors, a.k.a. the truth, about the safety of products from the prefecture. Because nothing gets rid of dangerous levels of nuclear radiation like a good piece of well-placed propaganda. And that's why, Japan Reconstruction Agency, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. And while Japan is dealing with the problem of covering up what might be radioactive food, 
Let's get the kids involved. Episode 395 from January 15. If you want to sell a bad idea, just get kids to promote it. That's what's happening in Fukushima, where a group of elementary, junior high, and high school students in that city are taking part in propaganda, uh, an initiative to develop original recipes using local agricultural products as part of a broader propaganda project to highlight the city's recovery, quote unquote. The first phase of the campaign, known as the I Kid You Not FUKO Project, F-U-K-K-O, too bad I'm on broadcast and can't say what I'd like to say, it started on December 16th. And the dishes they create will be served at several locations, including the cafeteria in Fukushima City Hall. Part of the Japanese campaign to spread the pain. And that's why Fukushima City officials who dreamed up this propaganda, uh, excuse me, plan, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, Num Nuts of the Week. If you're not sure that the food you're producing is unradioactive enough for consumption in your country, just play games with the numbers and then sell it to countries with lower standards. For example, in Japan, before the Fukushima nuclear disaster, most food measured 0.5 becquerels per kilogram of cesium or lower. After Fukushima Daiichi, In Japan, it's illegal to sell food to the public that has more than 100 becquerels of cesium per kilogram. However, that's not as bad as it gets. Here in the U.S., the limit is 1,200 becquerels per kilogram, and in the EU, it is 1,000, which is why we have numbnuts like this one from episode 441 on December 5th a trade deal with Japan that removes controls over radioactivity levels in foods produced in Japan following the 2011 Fukushima nuclear disaster. As a result, even Britain will soon be selling goods from the disaster-hit area, including breakfast cereals, fish, crustaceans, meat, green tea, and baby food. Even worse, Current plans do not allow for the contaminated products to be labeled, meaning consumers will not be aware the food contains traces of radioactive substances. So let's take a look at that word, traces. When radiation exposure, quote-unquote, safe levels are calculated, what's being measured is external exposure, and the model used is a 150 to 170-pound man approximately 25 to 30 years old, a military model, if you will. But external radiation exposure is far less dangerous than internal exposure, which is what you get when you eat food or drink water or breathe air that has radionuclides in it. After Fukushima, Japan raised the allowable levels of radiation in its food from 20 becquerels per kilogram It's a unit of measurement. Just pay attention to the numbers. 20 becquerels of radiation per kilogram. But after Fukushima, they raised it to 100 becquerels per kilogram. However, the European Union sets their limit at 1,000 becquerels per kilogram, and the United States, in its wisdom, at 1,200. So food that is too radioactive to be legally sold in Japan is perfectly legal to export to the United States, the European Union, 
Britain. Internal contamination from radiation can lead to a wide range of illnesses later in life, including cancers, autoimmune diseases, heart disease. And yet, at the moment, 100 becquerels of radioactivity per kilogram of food is permissible even for cereals eaten by children. And for baby foods, 50 becquerels is allowed. How much should be allowed? Zero. None. Nil. But Japan keeps pushing the trade agreements to make it seem as though everything is A-OK in Fukushima and that there is no reason for concern as to the internal radiation exposure of babies, children, even adults. And that's why whoever was behind this particularly ridiculous, if not heinous, bit of permission to this nuclear perpetrator, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. Then there are the well-meaning but unwitting dupes. November 28, episode 440, had this unexpected numbnuts. And rounding out the Pope news, a Japanese Catholic from Fukushima Prefecture plans to present locally grown persimmons to Pope Francis during his visit to Japan. Chuichi Ozawa from Koryama City, a member of the Koryama Catholic Church, has proposed presenting Aizu Mishirazu persimmons to the Pope to help dispel concerns about the safety of Fukushima produce due to the accident. Ozawa says if the Pope eats the persimmons, it will lift the spirits of Fukushima farmers. However, none of these persimmon are reputed to have been tested for radiation contamination. So hey, Francis, listen up. This is a propaganda alert. They want to use you to give Fukushima produce a pass when it comes to being concerned about its safety. So please, don't fall for it. Do not be a propaganda tool after you've just said so many things that are important about nuclear. And know that if you do, you will fully qualify as this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. Speaking of Pope Francis, he has been getting more vocal on nuclear issues. On Monday, November 25th, he called for renewed efforts to help victims of Japan's 2011 triple disaster, as he called it, of earthquake, tsunami, and the Fukushima meltdown, noting concern in the country over the continued use of nuclear power, though he did stop short of intervening in the debate over nuclear power in Japan, merely noting that the bishops in the country have called for atomic plants to be shelved. In December, Pope Francis traveled to Hiroshima and Nagasaki in Japan to commemorate the 74th anniversary of the dropping of the uranium bomb on Hiroshima and the plutonium bomb on Nagasaki. In a press conference held on the papal plane on his way back to the Vatican, Pope Francis called both the use and the possession of nuclear weapons immoral, and he said it must be added to the catechism of the Catholic Church. That's great, Pope. Just don't eat those persimmons. Hey, it's time for some stupid nuclear tourism tricks. Let's start with Fukushima from February 19, episode number 400. Wondering what to do for your next vacation? An official at the Japan National Tourism Organization says, 
There is growing interest among foreign tourists for a tour in English to former evacuation zones in the northeastern Japan prefecture of Fukushima. So there is a tourism company called Not World Co. And it's spelled K-N-O-T, but it's got to be somebody's idea of a joke. This company is based in Tokyo and has designed this particular tour from a desire to encourage more people to, quote, hear the local voices and see the area's damage and recovery. But who's curating their voices and what they get to say? And how can you see recovery from radiation when you can't see radiation? In other words, without realizing it, or maybe they do, but still maybe they don't, the strategy of the organizers of these tours is to participate fully in the Japanese government's aim to make believe that radioactivity is not there, or if it is, eh, it's not dangerous. Unfortunately, in the first year, some 200 people from 23 countries have already participated. And of course, the goal is to get everyone to come on down for the 2020 Radioactive Tokyo Olympics. The Kyoto News article goes on to say that various thoughts are voiced in Fukushima Prefecture without identifying who is voicing these thoughts. And they are, We would really like the tourists to come not out of casual interest, but to truly learn the issue. And please also turn your attention to the fact that our lives before the accident has not returned. But no one is using the N-word, nuclear, or the R-word, radiation. And that's why, not World Company, based in Tokyo, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out a week. That other major nuclear disaster, Chernobyl, is suddenly and strangely fashionable. Having been portrayed with realistic special effects and makeup during the HBO series on the 1986 catastrophic Russian nuclear accident, But people haven't been deterred by the warnings posed by that series. Au contraire. Here are two Chernobyl tourism stories. The first, number 394 from last January 8, and the other from October 8, episode 433, which happened just in time for Halloween. Let's say you've got an old radioactive abandoned site, like mm, Chernobyl. What are you going to do to take advantage of that chunk of land just sitting there? Why, let's throw a party. Let's throw a rave. Yeah, but they did. Members of the rave community, often looking for new and improved places, put that in quotes, and settings to dance the night away, last December held a rave at Chernobyl. As described by Valery Korshinov, an artist from Kiev who masterminded the experience, For all the people, the world knew this place for tragedy, but we have made Chernobyl less harmful for the environment. We are safe. We have come here to change the history of Chernobyl. Uh, maybe not the history of Chernobyl, but certainly the history of the people there, if we just check back in three to five years to find out their thyroid cancer rate and 15 and more years for their heart tumor rate. But everybody thought that they were safe because they were wearing suits to keep them protected for radiation. Ah, they're talking about the white Kevlar things. I mean, really, guys. But you can't keep a good raver down. 
People danced, laughed, played, raved in the decontaminated, this is what they said it was, decontaminated area of the Chernobyl nuclear plant. Uh, No such thing. There's always residual there. And they were spreading brightness in a place reminiscent of a zombie apocalypse setting. Scientists, remember those people who have got like degrees and study this stuff? Scientists predict that it will take a minimum of 24,000 years before the zone will be considered inhabitable again. But the rave helped spread the propaganda that the city of Pripyat has shown signs of improvement and a great portion of it is, quote, no longer contaminated by the harmful radiation. And the local government hoped to see an influx of tourists which will help generate economic growth. So, whoopee, everyone, let's all go party down at Chernobyl. And remember, no glow sticks will be required. And that's why Valery Karshinov and you stupid young people dancing your lives away in Chernobyl and City of Pripyat and whoever else was behind this really stupid idea, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Fans of the HBO series Chernobyl are in for quite the treat. Starting now, visitors to the Chernobyl Exclusion Zone, which is a bad idea to begin with, will be allowed inside the control room at Reactor Number 4, the very one that exploded on April 26, 1986, setting off events that would result in the world's biggest nuclear meltdown ever. Until Fukushima, but that's a topic open for debate. The State Agency of Ukraine on Exclusion Zone Management is opening up 21 new routes through the Exclusion Zone to tourists, and one of them is to the control room of Reactor Number 4. This is where radiation levels are 40,000 times higher than acceptable levels. Idiots, guests, have to wear protective suits and face masks when in there, you think? And even then, they will only be allowed in the control room for five minutes because, as they say, anything beyond that might prove seriously harmful. Yeah, think? But there's no stopping a bad idea once delusions of immortality have taken hold. Just this year alone, 85,000 tourists have visited Chernobyl. Several travel companies organize regular visits to the exclusion zone, a.k.a. tour guides to hell, because radiation levels are still lethal in certain areas of Chernobyl. But, as this little press release goes on to say, YOLO, you only live once, you know? Perhaps. But why intentionally shorten your stay as a life form? And that's why... Anyone who chooses to visit the control room at Chernobyl and those in power and authority who have decided to open it up to tourists, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, Numbnuts of the Week. We'll have more for you shortly, including Numbnuts of the Year. But first, I know you care about getting honest, verifiable nuclear news. Otherwise, you wouldn't be listening to this show. That's what we set out to provide at Nuclear Hot Seat every week. Verifiable nuclear information that's been sourced, checked, and footnoted, leavened with a little bit of attitude for sure. Plus, I add interviews with people who are genuine experts in various aspects of the nuclear industry and its impact on life, health, and our shared genetic future. There are also features with people on the front lines of activism against nukes around the world. 
Without your support, Nuclear Hot Seat would not be able to continue. So if you're grateful for the information you get from the show, help us out by sending a donation to help us meet our expenses. Just go to NuclearHotSeat.com and click on the big red Donate button. That's where you can send a one-time donation of any size or set up an automatic recurring donation of any size. And for those of you who want to make a big difference on a small budget, on the website there's a big green Donate button that allows you to easily set up a recurring donation of $5 a month, the same as you'd spend here in the U.S. on a cup of coffee and a decent tip. So please... Do what you can to help Nuclear Hot Seat stay up and running so that we can continue to search out and share information that the nuclear industry would really rather you not know. Whatever you can do to help, you've got my gratitude. Now back to this week's year-end special, Nuclear Hot Seat's Numbnuts of the Year. Once one is aware of the dangers of nuclear radiation, it can't help but influence your health and lifestyle choices but not always in ways that one would anticipate. Here's a bit of health dyslexia from January 29, episode 397. People just don't understand about radiation and its dangers, do they? People from all over the United States and even overseas have been traveling to Boulder Basin in Montana to deliberately breathe radioactive air. They sit in the tunnels of a handful of so-called radon health mines, which are decommissioned gold and uranium mines, in order to breathe air tainted with radon and even drinking radon water. Now, radon is the same radioactive chemical element that the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency warns about. High concentrations of radon are clearly linked to an increased risk of lung cancer. Tim Driscoll from the University of Sydney and the Occupational and Environmental Cancer Committee at the Cancer Council says that radon is not to be messed with. Quote, if the radon's breathed in, it's in the lung, either in the airways or lodged in the tissue. When it breaks down, alpha particles cause direct damage to the DNA of the lung cells and increase your risk of cancer. And even if you don't get cancer, that DNA damage could be passed down to future generations. Entering into one of these radon mines can give you a blast that is 425 times higher than the safety limit set by the EPA. People say they do this to improve their health. But you know, considering that the average age of the visitors is over 70, and it could be 10 to 20 years before any cancer related to the radon could become manifest, maybe they're off scot-free. But kids, do not try this at home. And that's why anybody who knowingly and willingly travels in order to breathe in radon as though it's going to be a health benefit, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And of course... If the bomb doesn't incinerate you, there are always other ways to achieve that nuclear end. We heard about it August 27, episode number 427. According to U.S. News website Axios, President Donald Trump has suggested nuking hurricanes to stop them from hitting America. After the report surfaced, in typical gaslighting, mansplaining style, he then said he didn't say what several people quoted him as saying. 
Note that National Geographic published an article pointing out how frequently the idea of nuking hurricanes has been raised over the past several decades. In the article called Nuking Hurricane, the surprising history of a really bad idea, the magazine pointed out that the response from the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration was, needless to say, this is not a good idea. No, obviously, we do have to say it. And that's why, Donald Trump, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's of the week. This brings us to the overarching problems of nuclear reactors, that glowing elephant in the living room that the nuke industry never likes to talk about, the radioactive waste created by every nuclear reactor. And they all contain plutonium, which is radioactive for a half-life of 24,000 years, which means that it is dangerous for over 400,000 years. There's no way to safely store the stuff. There's no way to neutralize it. So the nuclear industry has created a real mess we're going to have to deal with for mm, forever. But that doesn't mean that there aren't people in high places with lots of money who are pushing for us to take our eye off those nasty little buggers and the safety issues. And these people are fully enabled by their codependents in the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. This story from March 19, 2019, episode number 404. All those aging nuclear reactors here in the U.S. are just getting older, but still the nuclear industry is pushing for deregulation and are trying to convince federal regulators to scale back safety inspections and limit what lower-level issues are reported to the public. When the Nuclear Energy Institute requested such changes as shifting to more self-assessments, cutting back on public disclosures for problems at plants, and reducing what they call the, quote, burden of radiation protection and emergency preparedness inspections. WTF? They want the fox to guard the hen house even more than it already is. And as for the burden of radiation protection and emergency preparedness inspections, burden on whom? Certainly not the public, which deserves to know about this, but shh, they don't want you knowing about that either. The Trump Nuclear Regulatory Commission appointees and industry reps say changes in oversight are warranted to reflect the industry's overall improved safety records and financial difficulties. Well, first of all, if there's an improved safety record, don't you think that's because they've been having these regular inspections, which must be made transparently visible to the public? And if they're not making money, hey, this is still capitalism. You don't make money, the business shuts down, and then you have to clean up your mess. So shame on all of those who are pushing to make us less safe as nukes get older, more decrepit, more embrittled, and more prone to having problems. And all of you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. Then there's the magic trick that gets rid of high-level nuclear waste. Poof! Just like that. You've just got to use the right languaging. From June 18, 2019, episode number 416. Properly disposing of high-level radioactive nuclear waste a real headache? Simply reclassify it low-level nuclear waste and poof! All those headaches disappear. 
The government can dump it in shallow pits and just walk away. Crazy, you say? Crazy? Well, that's what the Trump administration is not only contemplating, the Energy Department has already done it. Loud protestation by citizens, politicians, environmentalists, and officials in charge of the Hanford site in Washington State and Savannah Riverside in South Carolina have meant nothing, nothing, compared to governmental glee at making it faster, easier, and $40 billion cheaper to quote-unquote clean up the waste all with the keystroke of a replace function. But no matter what you call it, high-level radioactive nuclear waste is still high-level radioactive nuclear waste with deadly impact to health, safety, environment, and our forever genetic future. But hey, you gotta save money where you can, don't ya? And that's why. Department of Energy and Trump administration's short-sighted idiots behind this decision. You are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of the week. Highly radioactive nuclear waste doesn't go away all by itself, and there's no getting away from it. Take this story about waste from atomic and hydrogen bomb tests in the South Pacific in the 1940s and 1950s. November 20th's nuclear hot seat, number 439. In the South Pacific, the United States has demanded a cleanup of the Runit Dome. That's where the U.S. dumped 35 Olympic swimming pools worth of atomic soil and debris that it created in its Cold War nuclear weapons testing program. But no, they were not demanding a cleanup of the radioactive waste something the Marshall Islanders have been requesting for years. They wanted a cleanup of the anti-U.S. graffiti that had been spray-painted to the top of the dome. And despite its position that the dome and its radioactive contents actually belonged to the Marshallese government, despite the fact that it was all created by the U.S., our Department of Energy paid a contractor to scrub off the offending message after getting permission from the mayor of Inuitok Atoll, where the dome is located. While Inuitok Mayor Jack Ading said he probably should have rejected the request to remove it because the message on the dome reflected Marshallese sentiment that the U.S. should take ownership of the radioactive waste, he said, I did not want to fight the U.S. government over a graffiti. As reported in a recent L.A. Times special supplement on the Marshall Islands, some find it ironic that the Energy Department and its contractors are keeping the surface of the dome clean while doing nothing to prevent the radioactive waste from leaking out of it. And that's why DOE and your short-sighted misplaced concern about appearances of the Runit Dome and not the substance of it, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. There are other ways the nuclear industry tries to get rid of its radioactive waste too, like this recent classic example from Los Alamos National Laboratory, episode 442 from December 11. The contractor that's been in charge of the Los Alamos National Laboratory's operations for the past year lost track of 250 barrels of radioactive waste, while the company heading the legacy cleanup mislabeled and improperly stored waste containers and took months to remedy some infractions. This according to New Mexico's yearly report on hazardous waste permit violation. 
Triad National Security, LLC, Limited Liability Corporation, remember that, a consortium of nonprofits that runs the lab's daily operations, had 19 violations of its permit from the New Mexico Environment Department. While Newport News Nuclear BWX Telos Alamos, which is managing a 10-year cleanup of waste generated at the lab, was cited 29 times. Among the problems, barrels filled with rad waste were covered in rain or snow because they were stored under fabric domes that have holes in them because of inclement weather. This according to Steve Horak, spokesman for the Energy Department's Environment Management Field Office in Los Alamos. According to Jay Coglin, Executive Director of Nuclear Watch New Mexico, the fact that Lanel, Los Alamos, has mischaracterized, misplaced, misinventoried, or whatever, 250 barrels of waste is pretty astounding. We see mistakes being made by a new contractor, so definitely all of this is cause for concern. Yeah, think? And that's why. Triad National Security, LLC, and Newport News Nuclear BWXT, whatever that means, Los Alamos, you are this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. And don't expect mainstream media to cover the stories with any depth, because even the best of them has been drinking the nuke industry's Kool-Aid and writing their stories under the influence. From August 7, Episode 424. Shame on National Geographic. On July 30th, they published an article with the unequivocal title, All Spent Nuclear Fuel in the U.S. Will Soon End Up in One Place, meaning in New Mexico at the Eddie Lee site being promoted by Holtec International. The title presumes and promotes a done deal, but nah, that is not the case. The site is publicly opposed by New Mexico Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, Congresswoman Deb Haaland, and State Land Commissioner Stephanie Garcia-Richard. There are the unmitigated dangers of having such a site in proximity with fracking and oil pipelines. To say nothing of the dangers of hauling that stuff from nuclear reactors around the country to New Mexico, something that is opposed by a group that says it plainly, haul no. How dare National Geographic come up with a done deal headline like that, which of course is then available to be Googled and searched and blah de blah. National Geographic, you are definitely this week's Nuclear Hot Seed, none that's out of week. Which brings us to this year's prestigious award for the preeminent nuclear idiocy of 2019, Numbnuts of the Year. The 2020 Tokyo Olympics. The advisability of holding the Olympics at all in a country that experienced a triple nuclear reactor meltdown at Fukushima only nine years ago never seems to have been questioned by the powers that be in Japan. They are utilizing the event to normalize Fukushima, calling these the Recovery Olympics as if all it takes is a big athletic event with a flashy name and attendant multi-million dollar PR campaign to wipe away any dangers from three melted down, still highly radioactive leaking nuclear reactors and the radiation that they spewed into the environment and continue to spew every day. 
We prefer to call them the Radioactive Olympics. What are they up to, just for starters? The Olympic torch relay begins in Fukushima Prefecture, starting on March 26, just two and a half weeks after the ninth anniversary of the start of the catastrophe. It launches at the J Village National Training Center in Fukushima Prefecture, only 20 kilometers, that's 12 miles, away from the melted-down Fukushima Daiichi nuclear reactors. The route will take runners and those who cover them and cheer them on, not only into the evacuation zone, but through it, and will stay in Fukushima Prefecture for three full days. Now, radiation hotspots have been found as recently as December of 2019, near the starting point at J Village. While Japan hurried to clean that one up, there are undoubtedly others that either have not yet been discovered or are known and are being ignored. Think of the torchbearers running around and through radiation areas, breathing deeply as they stress their bodies to make it look like a real run. They're running through hot spots. They're going to be inhaling whatever is there to be inhaled, and the onlookers will be breathing deeply as they cheer them on. As for Jay Village, the former and now once again training site for soccer teams is the same place that was used to house emergency cleanup workers at Fukushima Daiichi for years after the nuclear disaster began. How intensive was the cleanup there? The decontamination? Can it ever be truly decontaminated? We'll never know. They're going to be holding sporting events in Fukushima City's Azuma Baseball Stadium. Now, that's 47 miles, 75 kilometers, from the remains of the meltdown. But hey, only one of the games is a baseball game that involves men. Six of them are softball games, meaning women only. And who cares about the reproductive health of these women? By the time anything goes wrong, should anything go wrong, they will be long divorced from this area and not able to trace back where they might have been contaminated. Japan has announced that much of the food they will be feeding the athletes will originate in Fukushima Prefecture, just to prove how mm-mm good it really is. Well, I don't know about you, but I have not knowingly eaten anything originating in Japan or even having touched the Pacific Ocean since March of 2011. Eight countries still have restrictions against importing food from Japan, especially seafood. And for the Olympics, South Korea has already announced that they will be importing all the food they feed their athletes, along with the chefs to prepare it. Radiation hotspots have been found in and through Tokyo, and it can be carried in the dust, in the pollen that comes off the hills, off the trees, off the mountains. So even if somebody is not in what is recognized as a radioactive zone, with these elite athletes working hard, breathing deeply, straining everything they've got, there's a good chance that they might be inhaling something that, down the line, is going to haunt them. And let's not forget the surfers, competing for the first time in the waters off Chiba Prefecture, which is the prefecture just south and adjacent to Fukushima Prefecture, and from where the import of seafood is specifically banned in at least eight countries. The Olympics are all an elaborate charade to convince the world that, all and any evidence to the contrary, nothing's wrong with Fukushima Daiichi, Japan is safe, the food is safe, and if you develop cancer anytime in the future, hey, 
No way they were responsible because you can't prove it. It takes so long between cause and effect, exposure and the development of any kind of an illness that there is plausible deniability built into the system. You can't prove cause and effect even if it exists. So Japan, the country whose Prime Minister Shinzo Abe lied to the International Olympic Committee saying that everything at Fukushima was under control when he said that in 2013, and is now staging the 2020 Radioactive Olympics as the greatest PR propaganda tool for hiding the ongoing Fukushima Daiichi disaster in plain sight and forcing the people of Japan who are originally from that area to move back whether they want to or not. Japan, the country, the Olympic Committee, Shinzo Abe, all of you together and the Olympics, you are this year's Nuclear Hot Seat Numbnuts of the Year. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Wednesday, January 1st, 2019. A reminder that Nuclear Hot Seat is now available on all your favorite podcast platforms. So what are you waiting for? Subscribe. And if there's a platform we've missed, let us know and we'll load it up there as well. I want to thank all of you for listening and joining with Nuclear Hot Seat listeners and followers around the world in 123 countries on six continents and counting. And a shout out to all of you who are listening on broadcast, courtesy the Pacifica Audio Port Network. If you know of a community radio station in your area that would like to carry Nuclear Hot Seat, just send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com and we will get that particular ball rolling. Now, if you have a hot tip, a story lead, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. And if you appreciate weekly verifiable news updates about nuclear issues around the world, take a moment to go to our website and check out the mechanism we have there for you to be able to support us. We're at nuclearhotseat.com, and we will be really grateful for anything you can do to help us along. Nuclear Hot Seat is copyright 2020, Libby Halevi and Hardestry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed as long as proper attribution is provided. This is Libby Halevi of Hardestry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, reminding you that propaganda that minimizes nuclear radiation impact is meant to make you feel safe. But words don't change scientific facts. They just calm you into ignoring the dangers you cannot escape and lull you back to sleep. So this has been your nuclear wake-up call. Do not go back to sleep because we are all in the nuclear hot seat. Nuclear hot seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat, it's the bomb.